Kia ora, I'm Alex Ashton and this is The Detail. Today, post-truth politics in a world of fake news, alternative facts and one-liners. If you put out something that you know to be a lie or, or a, a piece of misinformation, uh, you know that the media are going to pick up on it and they're going to broadcast it and that the retraction is going to come later or the fact-checking is going to come later. It's a term thrown around a lot, post-truth. So much so that in 2016, it was crowned Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year. Meaning, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Oh, the great battle between facts and feelings. Post-truth's popularity as a phrase came hot on the heels of two particularly divisive campaigns. Donald Trump's successful run for president... How are you going to make them pay for the wall? I will, and the wall just got 10 feet taller, believe me. It's got 10 feet taller. And Brexit. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people of this country have had enough of experts. With with, from organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best. Not to mention the rise of so-called alternative facts and the fire-like spread of fake news sources. Green's co-leader, James Shaw, sees those foreign trends rising here. The sort of lessons of Trump, the lessons of Brexit, the lessons of the Australian election seem to have gone to Simon Bridges' head and this kind of burn the house down in order to win approach, I think, is a very, very bad turn for New Zealand politics. Sam Suchdaver is newsroom.co.nz's political editor. It's not a new concept, really, I think, you know, for, for time immemorial politicians have, have tried to, you know, tug on the heartstrings of voters or in a negative sense through, through fear and scaremongering. This is a standard tool in the toolbox. I guess the question that some people raise is with the rise of social media, um, this eroding trust in politicians from the public, and that ability to amplify uh, you know, misinformation or, or simplistic sound bites or, or key phrases that you want to get out, being able to do that through Facebook, through Twitter, through other mediums, has that, has that made it worse? Yeah, how much do you think this is to do with... We're in a, this 24-hour news cycle now, right? Someone says something and it's reported straight away. Is this a symptom of, of that? Yeah, I think so. You know, journalists are stretched in terms of their resources. They have less time often to interrogate claims that are being made by by politicians, by officials, by experts. There is a need to just get it out there. Um, and and social media in particular, I see as, 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 you know, playing an integral role. People live in these echo chambers, and if you, if you want to, you can kind of stay in a closed circuit where you're just hearing the same messages that you put out repeated back at you and and so on. So it starts to disconnect from what the objective reality may be or the facts on the ground, and you can um, just just stay within that the network of, I guess, sympathisers or, or like-minded individuals. Is there a lot of planning that goes into this stuff and the, and the use of this emotive language? A- absolutely. A lot of it is, is premeditated. If you look at that part-time PM line... Uh, it just shows a lack of focus, priorities. Uh, frankly, I think a lot of New Zealanders will be starting to wonder whether we have a part-time Prime Minister and a part-time government. I think the other week, speaking about the gun reform, Simon Bridges, uh, national leader, I think said words to the effect of, 
this is doing nothing for the the criminals, the gangsters, and the extremists. And he used that line about about ten times. That seems to be aimed at good law-abiding people rather than the crims, the gangs, and the extremists. Be more serious in relation to criminals, gangs, and extremists. Tough on the crims, the gangs, and the extremists, and not being tough on crime and criminals. We do want it to see it tough on crime, on crims, on gangs, and extremists. Right, who do you want it to be tough on? Is it crims, gangs, and? Extremists. I'm sure there was a bit of workshopping that went into that and, and that desire to push it out through repetition. Now, it's not just Bridges. The Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, does it as well. Winston Peters, even the Greens. I mean, the, it's, it's, it's kind of natural. If you, if you have these talking points that you want to stick to, you need to repeat them as much as possible and get them out. And I think they probably do know that media are suckers for a soundbite. Do you think they're aware that what they're saying isn't always necessarily accurate, though? I think there's probably a little bit of plausible deniability at their end that they, they do believe it to be true. I, I, I don't know that anyone is deliberately peddling misinformation, but I think certainly there are there are cases where you could say, well, you've you've taken these these facts, this document, this policy, and put the worst possible spin on it. Now, is is that actually? what is intended or what is in there, I, I don't know. Um, I would say not some of the time. But, the, yeah, it's a, it's a massaging of the facts at best and at, at worst they probably do start to stretch the line into, you know, deliberate mistruths. Yeah, is this any different, this post-truth stuff, any different to just traditional spin where you take the bits you like and, and roll with that? Uh, it bears similarities. The difference is this idea that it's targeting emotions directly. And, you know, I think there would be in the past, you know, political disagreements, spin, it might be putting different sets of facts against each other. As opposed to post-truth politics, I think the idea is that, well, facts aren't necessarily as important as they used to be. If we can sort of strike that chord with the voter and and give them a line that they can um, identify with emotionally, then then that's uh, you know a big chunk of the job done. Don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Do you feel in New Zealand that we're moving more towards post-truth politics? I think we, we've seen a couple of worrying signs in, in recent months that it is coming onto our shores. The the one example that uh, springs to my mind is Simon Bridges uh, talking about this parliamentary budget office that the government has proposed setting up. The idea is that it will uh, cost political parties policies to provide some sort of independent verification of, of whether or not they're uh, fiscally viable. They so basically all... making sure the numbers add up so they're not just promising something that can't be delivered. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And this has been a, uh, you know, a constant talking point over the last, I think, at least three, four election campaigns is talks of uh, the fiscal hole, which Stephen Joyce raised, $11.7 billion, I think it was, in the 2017 election. And actually 2014, 2011 as well, you saw the National Party poking holes in, in Labour's fiscal policy claiming that the money wasn't there to fund fully fund everything they'd promised. So the idea, I think, is to provide a, a sort of a watchdog or a, an impartial referee who can say, well, actually, no, they have got the numbers right, or uh, no, they, they are wrong. There is something um, missing here. And so Simon Bridges' uh, concern is 
He used this line, it's... An opportunity they see to illegitimately, undemocratically screw the scrum on the opposition. And the, the problem I have with that is the proposal is to create an officer of parliament. Um, now, that's quite an important statutory role. It sits independently from the executive, from parliament. We've got the ombudsman at the moment, the auditor general, the parliamentary commissioner for the environment. They all have independence. No one tells them what to do. What's being proposed here won't allow the government to to screw the scrum because it, it sits separately from us on a, a different rugby field to, to stick with his parlance. But he's still maintaining this line and this attack even even when it doesn't really seem to bear any resemblance to the reality of what's been proposed. And, and as you say, it's not just Simon Bridges, the National, doing this, and I'll come to Labour in just a moment, but Simon Bridges' criticism of Statistics New Zealand... We've seen in recent months, whether it's GDP, whether it's immigration, vast swings as they revisit data and chop and change them. You know, it, it doesn't do a lot for confidence in our statistics in New Zealand. Well, I do call into question the competence of statistics in New Zealand. I think it's a real problem. When he started questioning them as an organisation and whether their work is up to scratch, what was he trying to do there? Yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest. I found it very strange. I mean, obviously, he has good reason to be concerned about how they handle the census. The the independent review into the census says, says as much. The um, chief statistician resigned for a reason. But to spring from that to saying that, you know, all their data may be questionable, how can we actually trust any of it? There is a, there is a gap between the management of one, one aspect of their job and saying, oh, well, all their work should be thrown out. There, there has been a political debate bubbling in the background over the electorate boundaries for 2020. They are redrawn on the back of census data, uh, which, as, as it happens every five years, and there has been some suggestion that the National Party might challenge those electorate boundaries on the grounds that, well, is this information valid? So that's probably at play there as well. You see the government talking about kindness and doing things, you know, compassionate leadership and that sort of language, which whilst it's not around numbers and, and things like that, it's still a mode of language and trying to get people to cling to an ideal. Are they guilty of this as much as the other side? Uh, I, I think so. It's, it's in, a, in a different way. But you're right, Jacinda Ardern obviously uh, uses very emotive language. She talks about kindness, well-being. If you look at the well-being budget and what was in there, what, was it really that different from an ordinary budget that a government puts out? Every every budget is focused on the well-being of New Zealanders. That's that's why politicians are here. That's what governments try to do. Now, they might try and do it in different ways, but this idea that, oh, this is a well-being budget, ergo the budgets in the past somehow weren't focused on, on the well-being of New Zealanders, uh, I, I do struggle with. And... There's not necessarily anything wrong with with appealing to, you know, people's sense of, of well being, of looking after each other. But when that becomes a, a substitute for, you know, for hard facts, subjective measurements of, of what's gone well and what hasn't, then that becomes a problem. I think one of the things about it is that and I say in my book, is that I don't really think we're in a post truth world. Policy researcher Dr Jess Berenson-Shaw has written a book called A Matter of Fact, looking at the difference between good information and misinformation. 
Her interest was sparked by the fact that things we know and have been really well researched often still don't make it into public opinion. The manipulation of information has always happened. You know, I give an example of right back when New Zealand was um, going through the New Zealand wars and it was being colonised by a group of, I guess, um, both politicians and businessmen uh, in Auckland who manipulated both media and politics information in order to get in place what we now um, understand are a series of laws which essentially enabled them to steal land off Māori that they wanted. So we could see that manipulation of information and disinformation was being used by powerful people for a long time. The difference now, I think, and what we see is that we've, or corporations, I guess, people and corporations have become cleverer at being able to see the type of misinformation which really piques people's interest. And they've really commodified that through digital and social media so that misinformation and disinformation is constructed in a way which really grabs people's attention and it draws on um, kind of what we call our, I guess Daniel Kahneman calls it our fast thinking brains and that that spreads really far and really fast. What sort of misinformation appeals to people and piques people's interests? So what we know is that political misinformation actually tends to spread faster than other misinformation. But also we know that we are inclined, just as human beings, to respond to kind of emotionally laden information. Often alarming information grabs people's attention quicker than uh, less alarming information. So fear-based misinformation is also spreads quite quickly as well. One of the problems with it is once people have heard incorrect information, research shows it's really difficult to um, to kind of back away from that in our brains, if you will, when experiments try to replace bad information with good information. For some reason, we kind of hold on to it. So that one of the big problems is, is that we, with repetition and amplification of bad information, we're really just helping it stick in people's brains. Is a real core of this that people will believe what they want to believe? I think one of the things that we talk about in the kind of cognitive sciences is uh, that there are these powerful cultural narratives that exist in at play in any culture. And those cultural narratives tend to be relatively shallow and quite easy for us to grasp onto. And so it's very easy to use information to sort of trigger these cultural narratives or these kind of shallow understandings in people. And when we do that, obviously, it's much easier for people to grasp onto kind of a shallow understanding of things. So it's not that people can't think more slowly or don't think more slowly. It's just that what's really easily accessible is the stuff which is simpler, it's kind of more present, it's repeated and it gives um, sort of shallow explanations for what are relatively complex things going on in society. Is that just because it is hard to understand complex problems though? Absolutely. It is. It is. Our brains are really primed to think about the concrete, the sort of things right in front of us. So often, you know, like complex issues like climate change or poverty, people tend to grasp at the things that they can see in terms of their everyday life. So kind of behaviours, people will give explanations for a big complex problem like poverty as, you know, people's behaviour is a problem. And that's because we're just naturally built to think in those kind of concrete ways. So when politicians, for example, really trigger kind of shallow thinking, then obviously it's a lot easier for people to engage in that way of thinking. Is 
encouraging that shallow thinking and playing to people's long-held beliefs, things like that. Is that new? You know, taking the bits of data you like, and yeah, that's been around for a while. Yeah, and and that's true. You know, like this is this is something that humans have always done. What I would argue now is that the tools for which we have um, to both do it more effectively and also spread it. So really fast news cycles, um, social and digital media, a kind of a, a withdrawal perhaps of funding of public media, which is more inclined to kind of explore things in these slower, deeper ways. These kinds of changes in our environment, so the structures of how we receive information, are really affecting the ability of this kind of sh- these shallow ways of thinking and these kind of ways of manipulating information in, in ways that aren't that helpful for people. Of course, the poster boy of post-truth speech is Donald Trump. I have been on their cover like 14 or 15 times. I think we have the all-time record in the history of Time magazine. The audience was the biggest ever, but this crowd was massive. Look how far back it goes. This crowd was massive. I guess it was the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan. Obamacare covers very few people. The fake media goes, Donald Trump has changed his stance on China. I haven't changed my stance. Now the Paris Agreement, they all say it's non-binding. Like hell, it's non-binding. There's fewer consequences, actually, for speaking untruths or mistruths uh, now in a public forum, mainly because of the, the rapidness of which information turns over constantly. And I'd certainly think that when you have a major international political power led by somebody who speaks mistruth and disinformation and malinformation all of the time, there's this kind of social proof that it doesn't really matter so much if what you're talking about is not the truth. Though I would say that, you know, truth is is a relative term, right? One person's misinformation is another person's fact. Are there different versions of the truth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we people talk about um, evidence-led policy or um, evidence-based decision-making as if it's some sort of neutral or logic-driven scenario. And what we know from um, other evidence, interestingly, is that you know most of the research that we do is being informed by values, what we value, who is in a position to ask the questions, what sort of outcomes that we care about. So often when people talk about um, using evidence-led policy or using evidence in their decision-making, we have to be really careful that we don't think that that's a neutral process, that we're we're really clear on who's benefiting and for what kind of outcomes that we're looking for. This whole thing around fact-checking, do we need people checking facts and, you know... The, the trumper meter, I think it's called, yeah. you know, and they count things. Is yeah. that a solution or is that just too simplistic? Uh, I think it's important that we're aware of where myths, truths are being told as a communication device and as a device to uh, let people uh, know that there's poor information out there or this is untrue at the mass level. There's Evidence suggests that that doesn't work. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing that fact-checking and holding it back and using it, but how we frame that fact-checking is actually really important because just presenting uh, this is someone something someone said and it's wrong uh, is actually serving to amplify that message. So, yes, fact-checked, but then think about how we're going to wrap those accurate informa- pieces of information we've found up in a kind of more productive story which will help people think 
and deeper ways. I asked Sam Suchdeva if we now need to accept that we have to take everything we hear with a grain of salt. It is incredibly difficult, and in fact-checking in and of itself is not without its problems. Just because one person, one fact-checker, looks at some statements and says, no, that's, that's clearly wrong, that's not true, you could pass it to someone else and they might say, well, no, I think, I think that is accurate. So it's really difficult for journalists, for the public, to, to interpret this. I think the best thing we can do is keep our minds open and, and really cast about for as wide a range of perspectives on issues as we can, rather than getting cloistered in these sort of echo chambers where we, we keep hearing the same arguments and the, the same lines and the same critiques. Is, you know, if, you, if there's this ability to actually listen to the other side, to whatever side you're on, and, and understand the, where the arguments they're making are coming from, then that should help you, I think, to, to maybe divine where, where the truth, so to speak, is on a particular issue. That's the detail for today. I'm Alex Ashton. We're brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Our associate producer is Keitaki Masalamini. Kakite anō. Ka